breaking news. A thing happened. Big news. Big news. So, uh, this almost never happens because we actually record our episodes, like, way ahead of time. Yeah. But something actually happened regarding this movie in between the time that we released our podcast and that this podcast is coming out. So we had to record an add-on, which we're doing for you right now. So what is this add-on regarding? Okay, so a thing happened in Star Trek land uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. that means that we have to add an addendum to exactly. our six degrees of Star Trek. It's, for it's a darn, darn shame that last week we did uh, we did uh, uh, six degrees as opposed to this upcoming week because, you know, we could have... Yeah, we could have added it. <laughs> but now we, now we have to do, as you say, an addendum. We now have a direct connection between this film and Star Trek. A direct connection, you say? A direct connection. So how could that have happened? Well, well I don't mo- know. There's only one running... Star yeah, Trek. more Star oh. Trek came out, basically. <laughs> <laughs> more Star Trek happened since last episode. So, so an episode of Star Trek Discovery happened, or came out basically right after we released this episode. The same day, right? Same day, same day, like hours afterwards. <laughs> um, and in that episode, none other than David fucking Cronenberg do I see on my screen. <laughs> That's the biggest one degree that you could possibly have. Yeah, the director of the movie in Star Trek. Yeah, so he's acting in Star Trek Discovery, which is strange because he doesn't normally act, and I don't think he likes to do it. He's a director. But um, I don't know. He did it. I guess. I guess because Star Trek Discovery is filmed in Toronto, and he's from Toronto, and I guess I don't know. Makes. He just thought somebody thought it would be cool. Someone called him up. Did like what? What role did he play? What was? Okay, so he plays um, Kovic. Kovic uh, is the name of the character. But anyway, he's some sort of like very weird, like investigator kind of guy who's like uh, interviewing some of the crew members of Discovery. Um, he seems to know a lot about biology and alternate universes. <laughs> um, I Just think like he might the real be a temp- David Cronenberg. Yeah, he might. I think he might be a temporal agent. This is just my speculation. I right. do not know anything now about we're what into the fan theory territory. Yeah, I don't know. I don't. I don't know anything about what Star Trek Discovery is planning. I don't have any inside information, despite you know what I may have led you to believe. I just know a lot about Star Trek. I am not a. <laughs> <laughs> it's all purely speculation, but it's 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 all purely speculation. But it was it was really cool to see uh, you know. Uh, Toronto boy David Cronenberg show up in Toronto production Star Trek Discovery. Yeah, that's huge. That's huge yeah. for Toronto, huge for Star Trek. Yeah, huge for yeah. It's great. So uh hope you enjoyed that uh little breaking news segment. Now we return to uh the meat of the podcast. Our regular <laughs> scheduled programming. Our regularly scheduled programming, yep.
welcome to Granger Commentaries. As always, I am Jake, and I am joined by my very good friend, Keaton Byer. And we are returning to you with part two of Low Fly. Yes, yes. So last week, uh, we talked all about the original story of The Fly. Um, we talked about the original movies, um, and then we also talked about the story um, of the making of the 1986 version. Uh, well, the, 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 the pre-production, rather, we talked about. Yeah, the about. story of, of uh, Mel Brooks <laughs> yeah. losing his patience. Exactly. Um, hey, firing that writer and then rehiring that writer. Yeah. Um, and, then, yeah. and then we got to the signing on of Cronenberg. Um, and then, of course, we discussed a bit of the background of Berger himself. Um, and uh, we talked about Howard Shore and, of course, Star Trek, as always. Um, as always. <laughs> uh, so now now we'll jump right back into the story of production uh, just after David Cronenberg appears. Um, I'm going to give just a quick recap here of where we are in the production story. So just a quick recap of the pre-production. Um so a guy named Kip Oman brings the short story to a guy named Charles Pogue, who has some connections at Fox. Fox owns the rights to The Fly. So then Pogue goes to Ben Stiller's producer friend, Stuart Kornfeld. Um, the pair then get money to write a script, which causes Fox to not give them any more money. Um, then they go to Mel Brooks, who is like, fire Pogue, he sucks, and then I'll give you money. Um, so Pogue's then gone. Uh, and they hire a guy named Waylon Green, who won an Oscar in 1970, but his script sucks too, uh, so Pogue's back. And then they hire a director named Robert Bierman, who has to leave quickly due to a personal tragedy. Uh, so the production's a mess. Meanwhile, Cronenberg is making Total Recall, or is trying to. Um, but then he's like, fuck you, Dino De Laurentiis, uh, and he bails. Uh, and then Kornfeld is alerted to this pa- uh, This is This is new information now. Um... Uh, Kornfeld is alerted to the uh, the uh, the fact that um, Cronen- Cronenberg uh, was ditching Total Recall um, by quote unquote the biggest asshole in Hollywood, who also knows Ben Stiller, Scott Rudin. Right. <laughs> I-, I was thinking the biggest asshole in Hollywood. Which one? Which one exactly? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, we talked about Scott Rudin in the Zoolander episode for a while about him being. <laughs> Not big asshole. Pleasant. Anyway, um, Cronenberg is like, yeah, sure, I'll do the movie. Um, I just need, you know, $750,000. Uh, so Kornfeld and Brooks are like, dope, we'll here's a million, a million bucks. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's fucking go. All right. So that brings us up to speed. And we know how Cronenberg likes to operate, specifically with his own crew on his own turf. Yeah. Um, Definitely. <laughs> which is awesome. Our home turf, yeah. Toronto, Ontario, baby. <laughs> so Stuart Kornfeld, uh, f- he flies up to Canada, specifically uh, Toronto, um, which there's so much Canada in this movie at every step. It just seems to uncover more Canada the deeper we dig. Um, yeah, it's uh, every step. <laughs> it's almost like it was made in Canada by a bunch of Canadians. It's like the band. The band? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Okay, let's not get into yeah, that because I know you could talk for hours no, about we won't that. Get into that. Um, but yeah, yeah. Don't, we'll, don't worry. We're gonna go into some more detail about Canada later on. Um, yeah, so we'll get back. But to, not about the band. Not about the band. No, about this movie. Yeah. So yeah, Stuart, Stuart Kornfeld flies up to Toronto um, to meet with Cronenberg. Um, Cronenberg rewrote the entire script, as we mentioned, uh, because he didn't like the dialogue, as we mentioned. Um, do we talk? Do we cover last time? Um, like the differences between Pogue script and the Cronenberg script? Uh, not in huge detail, I don't think. All right. But, uh, I think it, a lot of it was the dialogue, right? Yeah. Like, so he, he said in an interview that, yeah, there wasn't a, a single line of original dialogue from the Pogue script. No, oh, jeez. <laughs> He, like, stripped it entirely. Um, and basically, I think even in Pogue's version, they were still married. So that was, those right. were his major two changes, I think. Well, major two, those basically. But, I mean, obviously, there were still a lot of aspects of it in there. Well, yeah, exactly. In that same interview. Yeah, hence why he gets the, the writing credit. Yeah, it's why in that same interview, Cronenberg, um, uh, he, he adds that both, he's like, both writing credits uh, are legitimate. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, so then they gather Cronenberg's team. Um, the same people who we mentioned earlier. Uh, Ronald Sanders, editor, production designer, Carol Spire, director of photography, Mark Irwin, and then uh, Howard Shore, obviously. Um, and then a guy named Chris... Uh, I don't know how to pronounce his last name. Is it Wallace? I don't know. Um, I think it's Wallace, but I I don't want to, like. I've yeah. not seen Wallace spelled like that before, but it just it looks like it's just Wallace. Yeah, yeah I'm not sure. Uh, so Chris Wallace, Wallace, not to be confused with the other Chris Wallace. No. Um, so he did makeup effects um, and character design, um, or creature design. Sorry, not character design. Um, yeah. <laughs> now. Uh, Chris Wallace, had, he'd worked with Cronenberg before on Scanners. Right. Um, Did he do the exploding head bit? Yeah, I think that was, I think that <laughs> okay. was him. Um, but interestingly, it was actually Stuart Kornfeld who contacted him about doing The Fly. Um, okay. And Wallace, understandably, um, was not down. He was not interested because it was a remake and he was like, I don't do re- oh, okay. I don't do remakes. But then he was like, No, okay. no, it's David Cronenberg. Um and read the script. Um Stuart Cornfeld signed on. Or sorry, <laughs> fucking David Chris, Chris Wallace. Wallace. I I find it funny that uh Chris Wallace uh said he had a problem with um with remakes given that uh <laughs> I mean while not a remake, I find it funny that uh, he he ended up uh, working on uh, directing the yeah, fly more two. Yeah, than working on. He directed yeah. the fly two. Yeah, he directed the fly two, and uh, which speaks like so much to I think what the fly two is. Also hilarious. Yeah. There's actually a fly buzzing around me right now that I just had to swat off the microphone. That's almost really creepy, actually. 
You didn't kill it, did you? No, of course not. I wouldn't do that after. You didn't kill. Uh... <laughs> I looked at its head first. If I if ever yeah, I kill yeah. a fly now, I'm gonna have to check to see if it. Doesn't... Yeah, you're gonna have to think about. Um, yeah. <laughs> did I kill Jeff Goldblum? <laughs> Uh, we'll get into we'll talk maybe a bit more about the makeup and effects in greater detail uh, a bit later, um, but obviously it's pretty important to this movie. Yeah, that definitely makes it. Yeah, um, you can't really. It's just silly if you fuck it up, right? Yeah. According to to, to Chris Wallace, Cronenberg um, was uh, very attentive. Um, when listening to the needs of the makeup department. I mean, yeah, I mean, he's he's worked a lot with makeup throughout his career, so you would imagine that uh, he's uh, he understands some of the intricacies behind that. Yeah, exactly, like kind of like what's required um, and what makes yeah. it easier and, and whatnot. Um, Definitely. Yeah, so for Chris Wallace, like, um, you know, making it easier... Uh, meant that he 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 you know he wanted a lead actor with quote unquote no ears and no bridge of the nose. Um, <laughs> okay. Somebody like somebody you know some somebody you could easily apply makeup to and like transform their face you know. Right. Okay. Enter Jeff Goldblum. Right. So I I, I remember uh, it being mentioned in an interview that. Uh, that a lot of the actors that were um uh that were auditioned did not enjoy working with the rubber but Jeff Goldblum did <laughs> like you're going to want an actor who likes working in rubber yeah, no, and so enough. you know it's that's an important thing <laughs> yeah i mean how would they know though just like people what? said they didn't want to work with prosthetics because it's not like they. Would I'm have, not exactly sure. Like, I don't know that they would have. Would they have done? I don't know if they did screen tests, like before no, I don't they know. had cast anybody. I doubt it. But like maybe uh, they had some like, sure. really rudimentary. But I don't know. Prosthetic. He seemed apparently Jeff Goldblum was excited about working with the rubber. I feel like I mean, but that's just that's why I love Jeff Goldblum though, because he just yeah, seemed, he's excited like, about everything. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. He's like he's got. And just the way he talks, he like picks things, his words carefully. And like, that's not necessarily to say he's, he's always eloquent, but he's like passionate, you know? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> like, like Jeff, Jeff Goldblum seems like a great person to work with. Yeah. Like, uh, really easy to, uh, to direct, I imagine. But in terms of ears and bridge of nose, I don't know how familiar yeah. you, you are with Jeff Goldblum's say face. Jeff Goldblum's face. <laughs> I mean, I've seen it a couple times, I guess, in, in the movies. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he's he's got pretty big ears. He's got a pretty big nose. <laughs> yeah. Like. <laughs> uh, um, yeah, in fact, when the idea, like, when they were, like, when the idea to cast Goldblum was being seriously considered, um, apparently Cronenberg called up Wallace and was, like, so... We're thinking of Jeff Goldblum, but, <laughs> but... Uh, Chris Wallace is like, I don't know, too much ear, too much nose. I don't know if we can, uh, I don't know if we can abide by that. Yeah, he's like, I, I know he's the total opposite of what of what you want. What do you think? Yeah, clearly they worked around it. Yeah, well, according to Chris Wallace, he was like, I'll oh, do it. Like, he was a fan. He liked yeah. Goldblum. He thought he'd do great. He okay. was enthusiastic about it. Uh, so they they had Goldblum. Cool. 
so at the, apparently also at the time, according to Kornfeld, um, like one of the, the, the Fox studio heads, um, a guy named Larry Gordon, um, told them that he thought casting Goldblum was a huge mistake. Um, oh yeah. Why? I don't know. That's the thing is he didn't, they didn't say why he didn't think it was a good idea. And I'd really like to fucking know. How, how is that ever a bad idea? I mean, clearly it worked for him. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's like it's fairly early on in, in his career. But like, you know, he didn't have many or any really leading roles before this. I don't know. Maybe did he? Ah. Well, what? He was in Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Yeah. Uh, the Big Chill. Mm-hmm. Um, into the Night. Yeah. Yeah, a couple things. Yeah, but he wasn't like, he was more kind of like ensemble. Buckaroo Banzai. But yeah, um, Larry Gold, the way um, Stuart uh, Kornfeld um, tells it is he's like, this is like something a, a studio executive would like never do. If like, if like Mel Brooks would never do that. What, tell them that working with Joe Goldblum is a terrible idea? No, letting them do it after telling them that. Oh, right. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. he apparently he's yes. like, you know, it's your mistake to make. I think it's a right. huge mistake. But that they did it and it worked out great. Yeah, it worked out great. Um, yeah. Yeah, I really yeah. don't know why he didn't think Jeff Goldblum. Why the fuck would you have a problem with Jeff Goldblum? Yeah, I really don't understand. Now, as you may or may not know... Yeah, um, Jeff Goldblum and Gina Davis. They they were dating at the time, weren't dating they? Dating at the time, they were married from 1987 yeah. to 1991. But yeah, they were dating at the time. They started dating just prior. That's, yeah, to this movie. Uh, did was oh, I wonder how that casting like came about? Well, like was it just completely like a coincidence? No, no, not at all. Actually, it was not okay. Because while Goldblum was rehearsing for the role, um. Obviously, Davis would, like, uh, help him out, like, read opposite with him. Okay, right. So she was familiar with the material. Um, and Goldblum urged Kornfeld to give her an audition. Right. And so then she did, and then I imagine they were just uh, so impressed that they uh, hired her. Yeah, basically. Cronenberg obviously was yeah. skeptical at first. Yeah. But her, her audition was, quote-unquote, astounding. <laughs> According to Kornfeld. I mean, I think she is a big part of what makes this movie so disturbing is the reactions that yeah, she does. totally. It's like... <laughs> in in so many scenes, really, um, she elevates it. Like, because her, her, like, transition from, like, kind of confusion to, like, disgust is, is so... Absolute horror yeah to the horror it's yeah it's, it's so subtle and it just ha it, it's great she really is yeah, good at it absolutely yeah so we have uh casting for the two leads down and yes yeah, so now then obviously as we were mentioning uh, in the first episode um there's only like three people in this movie who really matter and the third yeah was really was played strathus I forget his last name. Stathis Borans. Stathis. I don't know. John Getz, I think is the yeah, guy. Yeah, John Getz. And his. Yeah. How did you? What did you think of his performance? It was fine. I mean, <laughs> he really made me hate him. Yeah, he's a real fucking 
shithead. Real dirtbag. He's a real dirtbag. <laughs> who, again, somehow becomes kind of the hero. Yeah, that's this is a very weird turn there. I don't really enjoy it. Anyway, um... Yeah. Like, he wasn't really expecting to get the role, I think. Right. Because when he went uh, for his audition, um, the way he tells it, he was like, enormously stressed out and had a bunch of shit on his mind already and had this like massive piercing headache um, yeah and apparently that was obvious and it, that was what it took <laughs> maybe that was what they were looking for and it was oh yeah it was obvious that he was irritated during the audition yeah and apparently when they were filming the scene at the magazine headquarters um like where his character doesn't believe Veronica's story about the teleportation. Yeah. Um, Cronenberg mentioned to him that he wanted him to do it like like he did in the audition. Um, oh, yeah. And Getz was like, I had this massive fucking headache. Like I couldn't. And Cronenberg was like. Did, did they like induce a headache? Did they get him like really hungover or something before they did no, it? No, no. This isn't like a Stanley okay. Kubrick film. <laughs> Sorry. This isn't a Stanley Kubrick or an Alfred Hitchcock film. No, he just said, uh, he said, um, can you act like you have one now? Right. Okay. So he, he did. And you can kind of see in that scene, if you watch it again with that in mind, it's pretty obvious that he's like acting as if he has a headache. Just trying to be irritated. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's interesting. So I mentioned it in the last episode, I'll, I'll mention it again, that a lot of the, a lot of the, the the details from this portion are, are drawn from a movie called Fear of the yeah. Flesh. Right. The Making of the Fly. Um Yeah, uh, check it out if you uh, if you get a chance. Yeah. It's very interesting. If you're interested in more information about the fly. Yeah, exactly. Like <laughs> uh but before you move on from casting, um I, I wanna point out something. Yes. Uh Cronenberg is in this movie <laughs> that's right he is so i i heard from cronenberg sorry cronenberg, cronenberg said told in an you? interview no cronenberg did not tell me i did reach out to him but he has not gotten back to me yet um there's the dream sequence in which uh gina davis's character gives birth to a a larval fly uh yeah and that's right there is a that's a horrible a doctor delivering the baby and that is david cronenberg of course it is of course because apparently what happened was uh as cronenberg said that uh he had got he had cast somebody to do that um but gina davis didn't like the guy who was cast to do it fair enough and that's so she was like i don't want that guy like in between my legs as she said that's fair enough yeah fair like completely fair so she's like you do it apparently he was a little bit irritated because he's like he wanted to like direct the thing he wanted to like be able to like direct it from you know behind the camera or whatever but that's just you know i guess he just did it because he just wanted to get it yeah felt like it was the right thing to to get it done yeah but yeah, so uh, he can be seen in this movie as the doctor who is delivering the baby. And that's probably, like, the first, like, truly horrifying scene in the movie. Um, or does uh, that happen after the donut know. scene? Does that happen after the donut scene? I can't remember. 
Um, Whichever one happens first. Yeah. But those are kind of the two first, like... <laughs> Wait, no, no, no. What about the baboon? The, no, but that's... The baboon is just a teaser. Like, the baboon is, like... <laughs> it's just... <laughs> like, the inside-out fucking monkey? Like, no, like... it's great. It's great. I mean, I have some <laughs> some questions about why he started with a baboon. <laughs> Well, I mean, he did some other things, I, I think, that they didn't show. Right, but if 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 an option is for it to turn inside out... Yeah. Yeah, there should have been some smaller animals used. Like, I just feel like, even just to make sense, he would have done it with, like, 6,000 mice first. Yeah, exactly. Also, yeah, mice are a lot easier to deal with than fucking monkeys. Yeah, where did he get a baboon? Why was there just a baboon around? It was a weird I don't detail. Know, he ordered them from, I don't know, surely there's some kind of laboratory animal <laughs> delivery service. I guess because, like, monkeys, baboons, apes, human-like connection, is that maybe... Yeah, it is. The um, they are actually used in, in research for... Uh, purposes because they're more similar to humans than obviously mice are hmm. so, so yes uh moving on from laboratory animals. <laughs> uh i was that's right i, I brought up the the fear of the flesh because i remember last time we were talking kind of about how it kind of like um pits people against each other almost like in the way it edits yeah like these interviews um mm -hmm. and there's a hilarious portion um, of interviews with uh, with John Getz and Jeff Goldblum. Um, yeah. That I think the implication in like the way that it's edited is that Goldblum was sort of blurring the lines between his on-screen relationship with with uh, oh, Gina yeah? Davis versus his real relationship. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> um... In kind of strange ways so what was he like you know being a shithead to john Getz or something like that's that that's kind of the implication i got like right but uh, i you don't know how much of that is like from the 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 documentary's narrative exactly and like because and, and the only source of this of this is you know this is just john Getz remembering it so right like yeah and then just again the way they like pit they like choose uh, one quote from from Getz and then one quote from Goldblum and they're kind of like not the same exact I don't know anyway like, yeah like there's even like a, a a situation where apparently Goldblum was was asked to leave the set because he was like really he wasn't like um well not in like like a a, a tense way I, I didn't gather it was like a tense asked to leave situation from the way he described it okay but more just like a fucking get out of here but it was because oh okay he was like yeah he wasn't shooting that day um right yeah because i was just thinking like those two characters actually don't have that many scenes together no yeah and i think the only scenes they have together gina davis is there as well yeah interesting um anyway that's like it's a really interesting sequence and i think i'm like i'm i can't quite capture what i mean by yeah i'll, I'll check it out um but yeah if you're interested, it's uh, it's in the film. But yeah, apparently, like again, the way Getz described it, he he was like, it was like almost like Jeff Goldblum was like trying to make sure that Gina and and John didn't develop any off-screen chemistry that might bleed into the on-screen relationships or something. 
okay it's just uh it was really weird weird but like when jeff goldblum talks about it um he says like he like again i love jeff goldblum he says stuff like oh yeah i was like wrapped up in imagination land um and was more concerned with uh um with how he was like, oh yeah, he just always, he, he talked so much about how invested he was in the emotional relationships and he was like more so than any other film like uh, I'd ever done. I was like proactive about like the relationships. I don't really know what that means. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it, it clearly seems like he was like very into the role. Yes, exactly. Like, I mean, and that really shows in his performance. Exactly. Because it's really good. Yes. I think the point of what Getz was trying to get at is that he didn't think Goldblum saw it as like a love triangle. Right. And that um, uh, definitely affected the way they played the characters in the end. Um, and he, he said the scenes that he did with Gina ended up kind of being more antagon- antagonistic than they might have been otherwise. Oh, because of the way that um, Jeff Goldblum was, was behaving. Acting? Yeah. Okay. So, hmm. for better or for worse, I don't really know, but I thought that was just kind of an interesting little I mean, story. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how much of the antagonism was like because of that, because I mean, I feel like a lot of that is in the, the script. Totally. Yeah, exactly. Like, I mean, there's that bit where she asks for her keys back, and then he's just like, no. God, that scene <laughs> like, is that's... so irritating. That's uh, what a you just fucking wanna, jerk. You just want to punch like, him in the fucking face. I really like what, what the fuck. It's true. It is satisfying when his hand fucking melts off and his foot. And his foot. <laughs> it's like pretty, uh, pretty cathartic. But yeah, where, where are we at? Jeff Goldblum. Ah, uh, yeah. I mean, he's excellent. And can I just like. The monologues he delivers in this film and some of the lines he does, like, just only, only can come from Jeff Goldblum. It's true. Like, only he can deliver these lines. Yes, like, quite literally in some cases. There's <laughs> there's this bit where he's in the cafe, right? Yeah. And he says, and this is just, he kind of just says this, like, I don't think you're meant to, like, really pay attention to what he's saying. It's just, like, the babblings of, like, a madman. Yeah. He says specifically, um, I feel like coffee, it's like somehow I've been purified, like, coffee <laughs> through a filter. Which is, like, so psychotic if you think about it, because that is not at all what a coffee filter does. <laughs> it does not purify anything. It's not purified coffee. It turns it 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 mixes um water with coffee grounds, which is actually kind of what happened to the teleporter if you think about it. You have been analyzing that line. It's so like it's so fucked up if you think about it. It's like, you know, that really shows like how far off the edge he is. Yeah. His lines, he like the things he says are like you know, they're even correct if you think about it. Yeah, well, that scene is. <laughs> he doesn't know how right he is. That's true, actually. Yeah. What part of the scene was that? Was that because, like, it it it's when they're hanging around Kensington Market and then they go to the uh, 
cafe. You know, in the in, in the script, after a lot of the monologues or soliloquies, Cronenberg yeah. would leave like an ellipses. Um, yeah, and, and Jeff would just sort of go. Yeah, exactly. Jeff would like and, and like and he fucking killed it. Like his like yeah, like like that bit at the end where he's like, uh, you know what? I think I will have a cannoli. Waiter, yeah, waiter, waiter, <laughs> waiter, come on! Like that's such a good like that. <laughs> and then just continues like talking about like whatever the fuck like weirdo. Yeah, like know. that's such a great uh, scene, and 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 half of it was Jeff Goldblum's like, yeah. Like, dialogue but yeah obviously my favorite bit is is the whole plasma fool monologue yes the plasma fool. which i actually i actually have here on the sound of course you do i'm gonna play it for you because it's just so like the way he delivers it is so good it is really good something went wrong seth when you went through something went wrong no not you you're too chicken shit to be a member of the Dynamic Duo Club? Okay, then great. I'll find somebody else. Somebody who can keep up with me. Seth, you have to listen to me. You're afraid to dive into the plasma pool, aren't you? You're afraid to be destroyed, recreated, aren't you? I bet you think that you woke me up about the flesh, don't you? But you only know society's straight line about the flesh. You can't penetrate beyond society's sick, gray fear of the flesh. Drink deep or taste not the plasma spring. See what I'm saying? I'm not just talking about sex and penetration. I'm talking about penetration beyond the veil of the flesh. A deep, penetrating dive into the plasma pool. Drink deep or taste not the plasma spring. Such a good (laughs) monologue. Oh, my God. Yeah, and there's this bit at the end where he... he, he, I, I... I don't know if this was improvised or not, but he he just um, as he's walking away, he just jumps up and hits the light on the ceiling. <laughs> and it's just it, it further feeds into just how unhinged he is that he just spontaneously decides to do that unnecessary bit. Yeah, to just underscore it all, and um, I I feel like it probably wasn't in the script because um, like. I feel like if you don't know that it's Jeff Goldblum, like you wouldn't be able to do that because I mean Jeff Goldblum's really tall. First of all, he's six foot four. You're talking specifically about jumping up and hitting the light, whether or not that was in the hitting script. the light. Yeah, yeah. I I, I don't think that was I because I think it, that's yeah. something you would only think of if you see like, oh, you know, he could probably pull that yeah, off. Yeah, yeah, totally. That's yeah. No, that's definitely Jeff Goldblum in the moment. Yeah, because he was um, he always like added those little like he was very aware. I mean, I guess he's an actor. It's a stupid thing to say. Aware of his yeah, physicality, that's, that's what they do. Job to do. So, never mind. Go on. <laughs> I pretend to be the person I'm portraying. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So, yeah, he, he adds those little little bits, which I think uh, really complete the performance. Totally. And uh, once again, speaking of uh, like. Jeff Goldblum, like, whilst being tall, is also fucking jacked in this movie. Yeah, well, him, him talking about apparently he was like lifting weights on set. Yeah, eh? yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, he had weights on set that he would lift. He was like the, the way the his answer to the question of like what he did to like hype himself up for the scenes 
where he was like, you know, supercharged. Um, yeah. His answer to that question in Fear of the Flesh is so good. I had I had a bit of it here. I'm just trying to find it. Yeah, uh, I I actually did watch that that bit that you uh, you sent me about uh, Jeff Goldblum and like he was talking about yeah lifting weights and like like drinking several coffees. And oh shit. yeah, okay, yeah, it was so good. He, he drink coffee, lift weights just before scenes. Yeah. yeah, this is a quote. He said, "Do a couple of things so that I was full of juice." <laughs> <laughs> he says it in this like uh uh like ooh kind of way. Yeah. <laughs> so who knows what he's talking about? I wonder if he like because uh, obviously the character is like eats a lot of like sugary things. Yeah. I was I'm wondering if he was like if if all those like empty chocolate bar wrappers were things that Jeff Goldblum actually ate before. Like that would be hilarious. <laughs> yeah, and that would totally be something just that, to give himself the energy. Totally something that Jeff Goldblum would do as well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, there's this part uh, where he's, like, doing acrobatics and shit. Uh, yeah. I mean, I don't think that's Jeff Goldblum. No, 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 I don't think so. This, this like, I think they, they just put a Jeff Goldblum wig on some kind of, like, Cirque du Soleil performer, and yeah. then, like, you know... <laughs> definitely a Cirque du Soleil the performer. Set. You're definitely probably right about that. What? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, um... They um. Or was I, I? I honestly, I thought yeah. that was a scene was a bit silly. I mean, like. Oh, I mean. My first watch through of the know. movie at that point, my thoughts were kind of like, "This is like, this is a bit silly." You've got a baboon inside out. For like, why does he have a baboon when there could have been a million mice? And then he like, you know, starts doing um like <laughs> like choreographed uh uh like routines on the bars it's uh it was a bit much for me at that point i think right okay well i I think it was just to like you know it was to show like at first like when he does it he he feels great and like he can do all this crazy shit but then like you know i know i know yeah i guess it had to be kind of cartoonish um yeah in order because it's so cartoonish what happens after that yeah they kind of had to make it's a definitely a different cartoon exactly oh much darker <laughs> cartoon yes um but yeah anyway yeah so there's also this bit uh after he does those acrobatics and this is like well he's like very much more fly like uh where he's um where he's climbing the walls oh yeah so um the standard way that this is done in sort of like hollywood movies is that you have some kind of rotating room yeah like that's kind of what i figured they did it for like so like that fred astaire bit where he dances on the ceiling yeah that was awesome so they actually had some unique issues though with this and i have a quote from mark Irwin here where he talks about mark Irwin, the cinematographer it. yeah so he says uh the rotating room was i've shot a few in california and the hollywood style uh their roots are something else uh joe Curtin and a few and the effects designers in Toronto had their own sheet of paper. They'd never done it before. Instead of making a box, basically they had a pipe through the middle and, uh, and would kind and you would squeeze inside. What? They made this completely out of sections of corrugated steel, like a sewer pipe kind of a thing. But this thing was 24 feet high. Now it was 30 feet deep. So you had to make your, so you made your own huge tube. 
It sat on wheels and it would rotate with a chain motor, just a giant horizontal lazy Susan. And the set went inside that. The real problems were not the camera, not the lights, but the fact as the story went, he ate a lot of junk food and he turned to the fly, the vomit dropped and that sort of thing. Junk food, unfortunately, comes in cellophane wrappers. So we littered the set with all this stuff. And when it's sitting there, it's fine. But when you turn it upside down, it starts to quiver. And the fact of the matter is that's not supposed to happen. He's supposed to walk up the wall, and it, if anything else does something, it kind of gives it away. That became the big issue. There were tape and glue guns and all kinds of solutions. <laughs> Sounds really, like not fun <laughs> yeah i mean so it sounds like basically like uh they made this whole contraption like a lot more complicated than it actually needed to be it sounds like it yeah like just the way they were he was describing it was like confusing. yeah then a lot of the problems they had to deal with ended up just having to do with the fact that they had a bunch of like chocolate bar wrappers on set <laughs> <laughs> and they needed to stop them from moving around that is ridiculous like, why do you think they did that? Like, they just didn't know how to do it, I guess. Really yeah, because, I mean, I, they'd never done it before, I guess. They made up their own version. Yeah, I mean, it worked. It looked yeah, really good. Yeah, it did. It looked great in the end, so. And somehow they stopped all the candy bar wrappers from flapping Yeah, I didn't even notice any candy bar wrappers. Maybe they just took them all out. <laughs> yeah, no, you, I, I actually watched it after reading this, and you can see it's, uh, it's mostly not candy bar wrappers, but there's, like, boxes of things. Right. And I, I think they basically just, like, glued everything to the wall. Cool. That's so pretty cool. So it wouldn't turn over. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, the makeup that Jeff Goldblum is wearing is next level. And obviously it's developing. Yeah. And there are several levels of it, There's too. Like, six like, levels. I, I like how you get the progression. Yeah. Um, from Brundle to Brundlefly. And Cronenberg said that, like, I'm not sure if it's totally true because Jeff Goldblum didn't say anything about it, but Cronenberg said that um goldblum had to go um and do speech therapy um oh to talk inside the uh inside the rubber with, thing like a prosthetic jaw on. i don't know i mean he's definitely wearing a lot of shit yeah like uh, apparently they had to do a full body cast <laughs> of him to uh to design the the costume i mean yeah clearly no well like it's this is the easiest way have you seen there's like some pictures of like a screen test of him wearing it like the first time he puts it on yeah i saw a couple of those it's hilarious he's like uh, he's yeah. wearing like a uh, uh, converse oh yeah <laughs> you're like poking at the bottom <laughs> and he's doing these like hilarious poses yeah that's funny um we could talk about some of the scenes that didn't make it into the film Ooh, uh, are you referring to the monkey cat? Uh, yeah, I am specifically referring to the monkey cat. I mean, this is not completely outside of the realm of effects. No, it's true. It it is yeah. it is in there actually. Um, yeah. Do you, I I have a good little rundown that I found of it. Yeah, go for it. It's um, it's okay. So this 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 sequence um, it's almost as infamous as the movie itself. Yeah. Um. Um, but Monkey Cat. Um, a legendary sequence in which a desperate Brundle in a transitional makeup stage that appears only in this scene, which is an interesting detail, 
Uh, Brundle uses the telepods to merge an alley cat and a baboon, the same baboon that Brundle successfully teleported earlier in the film, together in an attempt to find a cure for his condition. However, the resulting monkey cat creature comes out of the receiving telepod terribly deformed and in unendurable pain and attacks Brundle, who ends up beating the two-headed creature to death with a metal pipe to end its misery. (laughs) The sequence goes on to show the disturbed Brundle scaling the wall of his lab up to the roof, only to feel a sharp pain in his left side, specifically in the hernia-like bulge seen uh, in the final cut of the film when Brundle first demonstrates his wall-crawling powers that we were just yeah. talking about. Um, he accidentally slips off... This is where... This is the most, like, savage part. Um, yeah. He accidentally slips off the roof, slides down the wall, lands on a metal awning, and watches as a small fly-like leg emerges from his torso. Horrified by this new appendage, Brundle amputates it with his teeth. Have you seen the scene? Yeah, I watched it. Yeah, it's pretty brutal. (laughs) It is. Hard to watch. (laughs) Yeah, so I mean... I, I the reason why they cut it as as Cronenberg put it uh was because the uh the audience lost sympathy for Seth Brundle at that point. Well yeah, they thought it was like animal cruelty. Yeah. And, like beating it to death and Yeah. <laughs> it's just Yeah, it's not not a great scene. I I don't know, um yeah, so apparently they did like a they did a screening with a test audience, I think. Yeah. When yeah. But uh Allegedly. from what I from I don't know. To me it seemed at least like uh Cronenberg wasn't super happy about having to cut it because like oh, you really? know he I think he liked the how the effects turned out. Yeah, that's fair enough. That it does yeah. it does sound like an expensive sequence. Yeah, and exactly. Like a, like a lot of work went into it. Yeah. But I mean, yeah. I, uh, unfortunately, I was I wasn't able to find it in very high quality, so I no, you can't quite. See uh, it. I didn't get a a very good look at the the monkey cat itself. Well, the the monkey cat, um, we didn't mention it in our last episode, but the monkey cat's a throwback to the original story, right? Um, because okay. in, in the original story, in like a last ditch effort to um to save himself, Andre, I think Delambre, Delambre. Um, he like goes through the teleporter with a cat for whatever reason. Mm. And then he has like a a creepy fly cat head. I think it's a reference to that. Right. Okay. Yeah. I mean, obviously he's like losing his shit. So like, I don't know if we can like fully, uh, analyze his, uh, logic for doing that. No, but it uh, you do understand why you would lose at a certain point because you don't want the audience to 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 switch over to uh, just put him out of his misery. Yeah, that's too true. soon. Because I yeah. feel like after you see a sequence that's like that, you're just like, oh Jesus, Seth, like this is not going well. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, okay. Apparently, in the script, they didn't ever shoot this. This is. It, the scene sequence continued and got even more horrifying 
Oh, so they cut it down, like, from the script before they even filmed it. Yeah, like, that's probably why Cronenberg was frustrated, because he just, like, he, They kept this. having to, like, reduce his yeah. shit to make it more palatable. So, yeah. I feel like that must happen to Cronenberg a lot, though. Yeah, probably. He's probably... <laughs> at this point, he must be... Because I feel like whatever is in Cronenberg's head is probably way more horrifying than whatever is going to show up on screen. I mean, I'm sure what makes it to a Cronenberg script is like 10 notches less horrifying than what's happening in his head. And then yeah, exactly. what makes it to the screen is 10 times less horrifying than that. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, no, in the script, it additionally called for Brundle to encounter a homeless woman in the alley um, who on whose face he would vomit and whom he would subsequently <laughs> consume. Ah, uh, Jesus. What the fuck? So that's a bit much, I think. I think that would definitely... Yeah, I, I, I can see why that was. That didn't make it in there. I think people might lose even more sympathy for Seth if that was in there. Yeah. Yeah. There was also apparently uh, an epilogue originally. Oh, yeah? Well, that's not totally true. There was In like... the script, though, it didn't get filmed, right? No, it did. No, it did. In fact, they filmed four of them, I think. Really? Yeah, they had a bunch of alternate, um, alternate endings. Alternate endings? Yeah. Did 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 uh, did she have the baby in any of them? I don't think she had the baby in any of them. I think okay, if if I'm recalling correctly, in one of them, um, she and and Strathis. I think it's Stathis. Stathis. Uh, so yeah, they're, they end up together and the scene is like them in bed together. Um, and is she, he still missing his hand? Uh, maybe I probably, um, yeah. I assume it's probably like bandaged or something. And she like awake, yeah. like she, get, um, you know, wakes with a start from some horrifying dream about her baby or whatever. Right. So there's one version where that happens. Um, one version where that happens and she's clearly pregnant. Mm. Um, still, there's one where she has the dream without Stathis. 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 Stathis There's one where she's alone um, and yeah. has the dream and is pregnant and one where she is alone and isn't pregnant. Right. I think. Okay. Don't quote me on that. I think those are the four epilogues though okay but then like test audiences thought that like you know it should end um right where Just it at the end like where it actually ends in the released movie yeah and i think that's true i think an epilogue would have been too much yeah i mean they made a whole sequel for it oh god yeah uh they say so in the sequel i believe that they she does have the baby in the sequel yes she's not yeah. in it though is she no she isn't um, only uh, actually, John only Getz. only John Getz is in it. <laughs> the worst one. <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, yeah. Uh, but it's yeah, like, yeah, she has the baby, and it's. About I mean, it's entirely possible uh, that you know the baby wasn't half fly. You know, it's entirely possible the baby was conceived before he turned into the fly. That's true. That's. I mean, they do leave it kind of ambiguous. Yeah. So I don't know if we mentioned. At this point, we kind of talked about the special, infe- special effects, makeup, hairstyling a lot. Did we mention that 
the only Oscar that this movie won was for makeup and hairstyling? Uh, no, we did not mention that. Well, now we did. Interesting. Yeah, only... Like, honestly, I gotta say, I was a bit... I was surprised that it was even nominated for any Oscars. I didn't kind of yeah, expect I mean, it to be in there, especially in the mid-80s, to be their, their cup I, I don't. Yeah, I don't think it would be the kind of thing that the Academy would consider, necessarily. Yeah. Based on what they're into. Yeah. So I guess... It's not of, your your uh, your classic Oscar, Oscar bait kind of film. <laughs> most Oscars don't involve copious... Most um, Oscar-winning movies don't involve copious amounts of rubber and... Yeah, I don't vomit. remember. I don't remember um, the Inside Out um, baboon in um, in the artist. Yeah, I don't think you were looking hard enough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's there's a little uh, anecdote that I want to talk about the uh, about the telepods. Uh, yeah, so they were trying to figure out a a design for the telepods, and uh, Carol. Is it Carol Spire or Carol Spear? Oh, I'm not sure. I think it's Spire. Anyway, Carol Spear uh, was saying, um, when we first started with the telepods, the, the very first one, I think, was a kind of variation upon a phone booth. It was boring. And we came up with some other ideas and took them to David. We actually took them to his house. And we said, we don't think we're there yet, but we'd just like to bring these along and sit down and just talk in the direction that we're going. And he said, you know, I want something with a lot of fins on it. So we started looking at things with fins. And he said, maybe like my Ducati motorcycle. So we went outside and we took a look at his motorcycle. Oh, my God. And we took it back to our studio and we looked at it. And he said, you know, we can't really improve on this a lot. So we looked at it and dang it, looked at it from different angles and ended up turning it upside down. When we turned it upside down... It was like, oh, well, that's it. <laughs> so, that's yeah, the, I, um, yeah. I totally see that. Yeah, yeah. The telepod is based on the look of David Cronenberg's Ducati motorcycle. And I actually think it's kind of cool that, like, when, uh, when Brundlefly gets fused with the telepod, like, they have it those. almost looks like there's motorcycle parts, like, coming out of him. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah, what is that part but of the But actually, that's called? my favorite makeup in, in the whole thing is the final form where he's, like, fused with the telepod. Uh, it's, it's rough. Yeah, it's like, ugh. ugh it makes can your we, skin crawl. Can we talk about that, actually, for a second? Fused with yeah. the telepod. Yeah. How did that happen? I don't know how the telepods work, uh, but as we know when there was a single fly in the same container as the telepod, right. uh, it fused with Brundle, right? Yeah. So what happened was the exterior of the telepod got damaged and parts of it went into the interior of the telepod. I see. At which point they were merged with the Brundle fly. Okay. Mm. Uh, and the reason why why Ronnie didn't get merged with Burnlefly was uh, yeah, because Stathis blew up the connection. Stathis, yeah, I got that much. I just wasn't like I just didn't feel like I was like, well, wouldn't the the like I I I, th I think there's like a sort of sphere of influence. 
of the telepod and since bits of the telepod collapsed in on themselves they i don't know i i don't understand the science behind the telepod oh really actually neither does seth runnell apparently no clearly not yeah, can we just talk about how fucking irresponsible seth runnell is <laughs> so fucking just getting wasted just decides to fucking put himself through the teleporter Incredibly like i think this is a message that is like um you know resonates a lot probably yeah today especially in our current predicament yeah uh, about you know treating science with respect and caution yeah totally yeah <laughs> and it uh so it's like yeah um you know there are procedures that you need to do such as testing baboons <laughs> when they come out of the telephone or even understanding how your machine works at yeah, all exactly understanding how your machine works it seems pretty you know i'm just a sort of a systems integrator i don't i don't even they i say you know build me a like me like an analyzer here build me a laser <laughs> there <laughs> i don't even know how half this stuff works also how did he not know that she was a reporter i we're like jumping all around here with like criticism all because sudden, he's well I, I think the the implication was that you know he was trying to get with her well yeah but also like he doesn't go to a lot of these parties or whatever and so he wasn't like prepared for that then like he doesn't get out the name of the company that he was hired by uh ooh, i can't uh was it the black black for either way either way they they are incredibly irresponsible for putting someone so irresponsible with like no supervision (laughs) (laughs) yeah i mean it doesn't sound like they gave him a lot of money to do it no it's true he did make it seem like he was like so under the also he wasn't like being completely honest with them that's true because it's like uh they apparently didn't even know about the whole telepods that he'd come up with despite the fact that they were probably already like a multi-million dollar invention uh after he could like transport inanimate objects yeah that's true more than multi-million yeah he's like but obviously um i i think uh seth's motivation for not telling them was basically that he mentioned that like you know they were gonna own whatever he came up with anyway so what he, he wouldn't yeah. have like directly profited off of it that much um so he was he was only in it for like the science, the science. value so you know uh yeah so he wanted to make sure he, he 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 got the whole thing working and was able to uh transport living beings <laughs> but yeah just imagine if there was like any number of more than just him working on it and none of this would have happened none of it would have happened or if he had just tested it on... don't drink in science don't yeah don't drink don't, that is the lesson in your laboratory uh, don't don't drink in your lab you know don't drink in science uh, well you can drink in science but i just you shouldn't do it like like literally at the same time like don't drink in your lab <laughs> <laughs> don't don't drink when you're when you're doing your tests. When you have telepods around. Yeah, when you've got things that can turn a bamboo a baboon inside out. Yeah. Also, yeah, I don't know. 
I, I think uh, he did a pretty pretty poor job writing that uh, that telepod software. <laughs> Considering it it, it 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 just like you know, oh, because the, the 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 computer clearly realized there was more than one life form in the thing. Yeah, and so instead of like canceling the process, it was just like okay, yeah, let's just go ahead and merge them. Well, it's Brundle's fault, remember? Because he said it just does what I tell it to do, man. Yeah, I know. I mean, I don't think this movie was written necessarily for a computer programmer. <laughs> no, but I'm just saying, like, the science of, like, the whole thing. And, like, you know, no, David Cronenberg should silly. know. He understands a little bit about science. It is silly that, like, it would not. I mean, obviously the point is to tell the story, and it's like, you know. Obviously, none of this would happen if he was careful. But we're definitely sticklers, and and that. <laughs> um, I, I just want to mention one more thing about the uh, telepod system: uh, is that the uh, the keyboard that he's typing on looks super satisfying, and I want one. Oh yeah, it does. It totally looks really great. Yeah, and it, it makes a it makes a good noise. So yeah, <laughs> clickety clack. It would be an interesting. Uh, uh, it would be an interesting curiosity to have. It's just be like, I have the uh, the keyboard from the telepod machine. So I asked the computer if it had improved me, and it said it didn't know what I was talking about, and that's made me think very carefully about what I've been feeling and why, and I'm beginning to think that the sheer process of being taken apart atom by atom and put back together again, why it's like coffee being put through a filter. It's somehow a purifying process. It's purified me. It's cleansed me. And I'll tell you, I think it's going to allow me to realize the personal potential... I've been neglecting all these years that I've been uh, obsessively pursuing goal after goal. Do you normally take coffee with your sugar? What? Uh, you know, I, I just don't think I've ever given me a chance to be me. But, of course, interestingly, at the exact same moment that I uh, achieved what will probably prove to be my life's work, that's the moment when I started being the real me, finally. So, uh, listen. And not to wax messianic, but uh, it may be true that the synchronicity of those two events might blur the resultant individual effect of either individually. But it is uh, uh, nevertheless also certainly true, I will say now, however uh, subjectively, that uh, human teleportation, molecular decimation, breakdown, and reformation is inherently purging. It makes a man a king. From the moment I walked out of the pot, I felt like a million bucks. You know, I think I am going to have a, a cannoli after all. Waiter! I mean, what an accomplishment. But what have I really done, though? All I've done is say to the world, let's go, move, catch me if you can. Waiter, Jesus Christ. So, uh, yeah. Uh, let's talk about Toronto. This movie was filmed here in Toronto, where both me and Keaton live. David Cronenberg shoots pretty much every movie he's ever done. Well, not every movie, because he actually shot a lot of them in Montreal. The early no, but, movies, especially, but almost and in Edmonton, I think he he shot a couple. Oh yeah, at least okay. uh, he uh, one or two. Right. Okay. But yeah, he shoots most of his movies in pretty much all his movies in Canada, and most of them in Toronto, in Toronto specifically. Yeah. yeah. And so this movie is actually set in Toronto. Like they never explicitly state that, but you know. It is Toronto, so I choose to believe that it's set in Toronto. It is Toronto, and there's this one part in the beginning at the Bartok party where I, Seth Brundle specifically says he's surrounded by, you know, uh, all the scientists in 
North America, which is obviously an inclusive term that Indeed. includes Canada. Yes. So I like the term uh, North I thought America. It's very explicit that, that 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 was the phrase that he used. Yes. Speaking of that scene, did you know that scene was shot at the AGO? No, I did not know that. Yeah, um, that's, uh, yeah, that's the AGO, you know. So uh, the sort of segment that I'm going to go over here is like, if you wanted to make your own The Fly-themed holiday to Toronto, (laughs) you know, once we're all allowed to travel again, um, (laughs) these are some of the, the attractions you might... Oh, that's great. <laughs> you might want to go to. <laughs> you know, when I went to when I went to New York, um uh, I went to every you Ghostbusters? Yeah, I went to every Ghostbusters yeah, yeah, yeah. landmark <laughs> that I could. So yeah, um, um so yeah, the very first scene, the Bartok party that is shot in the Art Gallery of Ontario, uh which it's a notable art gallery here in Toronto. <laughs> pretty <laughs> um, yeah. After they take off from the Bartok party, they go back to Seth's laboratory, <laughs> which is in the distillery district. Oh, really? Yeah, uh, Mill Street and Parliament. That's the outside, the external. Yeah, the yeah the interior is a is a set. It's, yeah, it was like a warehouse in like Scarborough or something. <laughs> yeah, I'm not exactly sure. Um, but yeah, the 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 exterior is uh, Mill Street and Parliament. They made it look uh, a little bit more run down than it looks normally. Yeah, I mean that might. I don't know what it was like in the eighties. That's true. That is a good, very yeah, good point. I think it's definitely been spruced up a bit. Yeah, and actually, interestingly, uh, there are actually quite a few Cronenberg movies that have been shot in and around there. I guess it's just a good place to film. It's like yeah, it's a good place to film. There's some interesting things. Uh. The next bit that I'd like to draw your attention to is a, it's another, uh, you know, Toronto sort of landmark. If, you, if you've been to downtown Toronto, uh, you know, you may have been to Kensington Market. Ah, uh, Kensington Market. Um, the scene right before... Is it right before he... Uh, yeah, it's, they it's, yeah, are in the cafe, and he's or this is basically right after he's been teleported. It's, yeah, it's it's early on, right after he's been teleported. It's right yeah. after the or right before the coffee scene where he goes on that great. You can waiter, Jesus Christ! Yeah, right before the coffee scene, they're walking through sort of a out outdoor market, and yeah. uh, that's Kensington Market. Uh, um, and so the this section they show is uh, basically Baldwin Street, uh, just uh, east of Augusta. The next scene is the coffee scene, which is at a place called John's Italian Cafe, which actually no longer exists. Uh, but it is at uh, Baldwin and McCall. When did it close? Um, I don't actually know, but I do know what it is now. What is it now? It's basically a bubble tea shop. <laughs> uh, it's a place called uh, Charadice. Okay. <laughs> But, I mean, you know that, like, yeah, so if you want to go into the cafe where they film the scene where he talks about coffee through a filter and, like, goes on a crazy rant. Why, it's like coffee being put through a filter. It's somehow a purifying process. I mean, I'll, I'll definitely be going there to, to <laughs> just 
you know, feel like I was in the place where they shot that part of the fly. <laughs> There's the scene where, um, uh, after he tries to get Ronnie to go through the teleporter and he decides, uh, she doesn't want to do it and he just runs off. A deep penetrating dive into the plasma pool. Uh, he goes to, like, um, like a bar yeah. to go find somebody else to put through the teleporter. <laughs> yeah. Because he's just got <laughs> just rails such a point. whack job. Like, fucking... I don't know what he's... Anyway, this place that he goes to is called Stoopy's Tavern. Okay. I don't know if that still exists. I actually haven't Stoopy's been there. Stoopy's Tavern. Apparently still exists. <laughs> Against all odds. Stoopy's... Against... <laughs> Yeah, um, it's actually also in Cronenberg's A History of Violence. Oh, yeah. Viggo yeah. Mortensen. So, yeah, anyway, this is Dundas on Ontario Street, if you're if you're following along. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, if you've got your map out. If you got, if you got your map of Toronto out, <laughs> this is where it is. So this is the scene where he, like, uh, breaks the dude's arm, which is a, another great prosthetic. That is a great bit, scene. Which is horrifying. Oh, it's got a bone sticking out. Yeah, it's sticking Ugh. out. And so afterwards, he's walking along, and they have this, uh, the, um, the are you a bodybuilder yeah. scene. Are you a bodybuilder? Are you a bodybuilder? Yes, I build bodies. I take them apart and put them together. <laughs> <laughs> Dialogue, man. See, imagine if that had been, what was the word? Um. Barnage. Barnage. <laughs> I'm sure Mel Brooks was, was satisfied with that kind yeah, of line. Exactly. And the, and the plasma pool. <laughs> Yeah, I don't, actually, that's that, that. That almost seems like a like a Mo Brooks line that wouldn't have like you know that wouldn't have looked out of place in Young Frankenstein or something like that. That's true, actually. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, um, that's basically at Young and Dundas where they filmed that. Oh yeah, I think yeah, I think you can kind of see that. Yeah, you can. Yeah. And so the shot that like absolutely gives it away that this is obviously uh, Toronto is. Uh, like when Ronnie is going to the hospital, um, they show an exterior shot in which you can very clearly see the CN Tower in the background. <laughs> ah, that's perfect. That's the best one. There's no, you can't argue anymore after that. As soon as yeah, you, it's like it's like if you show the Empire State Building, it's obviously New York. Yeah, exactly. if you show the the fucking CN the Tower. CN Tower, it's obviously Toronto. In Toronto, like, how do you know which way is south? You just look for the tower. Exactly, look for the tower. And you can see it everywhere because it's so tall. <laughs> <laughs> what is it, the third tallest uh, building in the world? Uh, it's pretty, it goes down every day. It's pretty tall. But yeah, it's, tall. it's, it's uh, one of the tallest freestanding. It used to be the tallest, but not anymore. Not anymore. It's pretty good. It's pretty good. It's, 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 it's a fair size. It's pretty tall. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, the the other thing that gives it away that it's obviously Toronto is uh, the uh, Ontario license plates. Yeah, yeah, those come up. So uh, there's another another thing. Oh yeah, mo- so basically you see the exterior of Monolith Publishing a couple times. This is where Stathis Stathis Boren's office is. Yeah, it's a pretty cartoonish name. Monolith Publishing. Monolith Publishing, yeah. So this is actually part of the Manulife building. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, so this is like 200 Bloor 3Ds, basically. Yeah, where the, the Manulife uh, theater is. Yeah, so you actually have to go like around... The varsity. Yeah, you have to kind of go around behind to see where this is, where, where the section that this was shot at is. Right. But, uh, yeah, check it. If you want to, like, put this on your the fly walk of uh, the fly tour of toronto we should do it's this a, someday we should just a fly tour of toronto yeah yeah just go to all the all, go the, fly to all places. The, the, the fly places have have some yeah have some bubble tea at uh <laughs> on bald one um yeah. but yeah so where it says monolith publishing on the building in the movie it actually now says manulife understandable because yeah yeah manulife building and all yeah, so that's um, that's all the places that I can think of that were like you know particularly recognizable and you could pin down. But um, I, I I do want to like I I I think this is really interesting because like you know not only is this movie shot in Toronto, but it's like it's a movie that doesn't hide the fact that it's shot in Toronto, which is something that so many movies that are shot in Toronto do. Yeah, no, it does. It, it, there is this kind of, like, shame that you feel as a Torontonian that, like, yeah. I, I think about people in, like, New York who it's, like, you know, it's like, you see your city in movies so often, whereas, like, whenever you see Toronto in movies, it's always, like, Toronto pretending to it's be New York. It's always Toronto pretending to be New York, yeah, Because yeah. it's and, like, cheaper. And, yeah. like, that is a bit depressing. <laughs> <laughs> like to have that be your like you know the standard for your city yeah um you're the cheap fake new york yeah did uh this was kind of put pretty well by uh have you ever heard uh heard of the, the youtube channel every frame of painting say that again every frame of painting no i don't think it's so. it was a, it's a, it, it, it he, he doesn't do it anymore but uh there was this uh YouTube channel called Every Frame of Painting, where uh, the guy, this film editor named Tony Zhang, did a a lot of video essays about uh, film, basically, and they were super interesting. But he had this one uh, video called Vancouver Never Plays Itself. Similar theme. Yeah, so it's basically e exactly the same thing we're talking about here. Vancouver has the exact same thing, uh, although there's a lot of yeah, a lot of TV shows and stuff are shot there too. Uh, although, yeah, there are actually a, a fair amount that are shot in Toronto, too. Yeah, that's true. Like, uh, notably recently, uh, The Boys on Amazon. Oh, yeah, that was shot in Toronto. I didn't know that. Yeah, another movie where, it's, sorry, show where it's masquerading against New York. <laughs> God damn it. But anyway, yeah, so, um, yeah, so it, it, it's just pretty interesting to see, like, uh, Toronto actually on display. It was like It was like when Scott Pilgrim came out, you know? Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's like, whoa, they're like, just, it's just so... It's just... Nonchalantly <laughs> Toronto. Yeah. I like this feeling. Yeah, I know. And they filmed some of that, like, just around the corner from my house, too, so it was, like, extra cool. Yep. Like, imagine just yeah, being yeah. from New York, and that just is, like, the that places that you, you go every day is, like... Although I... The thing is, not many movies are actually shot in New York. <laughs> I guess that's, that's true. So it's like they're... It's like... They don't actually see anything they recognize because none of it's actually New York. It's all Toronto. So maybe <laughs> well, it's not they're... just Toronto. It's it's know, like you yeah. know, it's Toronto. It's like fucking Cleveland. It's like yeah. fucking so Vancouver maybe... half the time. So maybe their reality is even more depressing than ours. Yeah, because it's like 
you know they have the they have a bunch of exterior shots like you know you'll show like the empire state building or whatever just to like you know show yeah this is new york right yeah and but no one actually wants to, to like, go there some more detailed like shot where it's toronto or something <laughs> anyway uh i think uh i think people have probably got their fill of us obsessing about uh toronto <laughs> yeah i think <laughs> We're probably really irritating for 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 some of the listeners. But, yeah, anybody, uh, literally anybody. Not even this though. I was gonna say anybody who's not Canadian, but honestly, there's only no, no, really other people. <laughs> like it's a certain like like if you're from Calgary, you're probably like fucking like, oh my god, won't they ever fucking shut up <laughs> like <from> Toronto <laughs> or Montreal or something like that? Like, yeah, anyone yeah. not from Toronto, even people from Toronto probably don't care. I don't know. I don't know. I feel like most people from Toronto care about it, but you know, we we tend to rep ourselves much to the chagrin of everyone maybe else, the rest of Canada. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so. What what do we got this week? <laughs> so, there's there's a there's a, a, actually quite a few topics I'm going to touch on. Um, All right. On this time. So uh, for those of you who are uh, who are new listeners, uh, the truth is a segment where we uh, we find something having to do with the movie, sometimes tangentially related, <laughs> often bizarre. And we get to the bottom of it, and we find the truth. What's what's really going on? Yes, yes. So, this week, what, what do we got? So, so for this edition of the truth, like I said, there's going to be quite a few, quite a few topics we're going to cover. But generally, the the theme is that we're going to explore. The reality of teleportation. Okay. If teleportation was real, there are two ways of looking at it. Okay. There's the human angle, and then there's the extraterrestrial angle. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Let's not, not go off the rails too early. No, no, no I'm not. Don't worry. <laughs> In the human angle, teleportation was slash is being developed behind closed doors by some Seth Brundle type, you know, in some secretive military or para- paramilitary base. Okay. Um, obviously, the general public would be in the dark, um, at least, like, until it was ready to, you know, be mass-marketed. Right. Um, but, you know, I guess we can we can safely say that the U.S. military doesn't have that technology um, because, you know, Trump would use it all the time if he was aware of it. <laughs> How do we know he doesn't? <laughs> That's a good point. How do you think he gets to the golf course? No, we we all we all know that the real shadow government doesn't tell the president anything. <laughs> That's true. It's it's too risky. Politicians are unpredictable. Yeah. Okay. So anyway, what do we I'm got? getting well, I'm getting sidetracked. The other angle is the alien angle. So basically, the human angle is like humans make teleportation. Okay. Then there's the extraterrestrial angle. Yeah. Um. The alien angle is pretty self-explanatory. Teleportation is an alien technology. However, 
there are some interesting subcategories to this angle. Right. For example, um, aliens have the technology and ha- and use slash have used it on humans. Mm-hmm. Um, like abductions and such? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Um, or like strange phenomenon. Um, <laughs> to prove this theory, you really don't have to look very far. Um, take, for example... Um, the 1593 transported <laughs> soldier legend. So I, 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 I assume you're using the, the term prove in a very loose way. <laughs> yeah, it's neither here nor there. <laughs> I, I have heard of this. You've heard of I've this? I've heard of this, yes. Okay, well, so what, what do you know about it? Uh, so what, the, allegedly in 1593 there was a soldier a spanish soldier who got transported from manila in the philippines to somewhere in mexico yeah exactly exactly so so there's some more there's some that's the gist of it the details are um there's a a soldier of the spanish empire um who while guarding the governor's palace in manila um he he hears word that the governor has been murdered at sea um Later on, he starts feeling woozy and leans on a wall to rest, closing his eyes. Mm-hmm. Um, upon reopening his eyes, he finds he is in a totally different uh, place. He's in Mexico City. Right. Um, he's Which then arrested. Needless to say, very far from Manila. And, you know, takes a while to get from Manila to Mexico City in 1593. Yeah. Um, so he's then arrested by the mexican guards because he's like in a palace and he's like dressed as like a spanish he's just not dressed right you know yeah he's thrown in jail and and he pleads with them and in doing so he mentions the murder of the governor right four months later word finally makes it to mexico city about the governor's murder Mm. um and it matches the soldier's story so they let him out okay so is this just a legend? Like, is there any evidence or records or anything of this at all? I mean, it's an old folklore story going back very long. Okay, so it's... Um, well, 1593, but it was popularized in a book of folklore in 1908. Okay. So it's... It's pretty compelling stuff. It's complete... <laughs> completely made up. No, no, it's an, al- is, uh, is an alien. Okay. It's an alien. Okay. Um, alien teleportation is the only logical answer for what happened there. Can you think of a more logical answer for what happened there? Yeah, it didn't happen. That's, but that's assuming it did happen. Okay. <laughs> I need you to just, just, to just don't think too much about it and just assume. Okay. That it did happen. Okay. Now, what is the most logical reason for it happening? I don't know. Fucking wizards. <laughs> Was it Jeff Goldblum? <laughs> um, the other sub-angle is that uh, alien tech teleportation is alien tech, but it's alien tech that humans acquired at some point. Right, like um, in Stargate. Ex- exactly. Um, and then we exploited it or reverse-engineered it, like in Stargate. Okay. Um, um which would be a great explanation for the 1943 <laughs> Philadelphia experiment, <laughs> which I know you're familiar uh, yeah, with. Yeah, yeah, I f- figured you were going to bring that up. 
Um, <laughs> well, tell us about the the Philadelphia experiment. Well, hey, I'll just read you this brief synopsis from Wikipedia because I think it sums it up really well. Okay. In most accounts of the supposed experiment, USS Elridge was fitted with the required equipment at the Philadelphia Naval Shipyard. Okay. Testing began in the summer of 1943, and it was supposedly successful to a limited extent. Okay. One test resulted in the Eldridge being rendered nearly invisible, with some witnesses reporting a greenish fog appearing in its place. Crew members complained of severe nausea afterwards. Also, reportedly, when the ship reappeared, this is intense, some sailors were embedded in the metal structures of the ship, including one sailor who ended up on a deck level below that, uh, on a deck level below that where he began, and his hand embedded in the steel hull of the ship. Sort of like when Seth Brundle was fused with the telepod. Exactly like that. (laughs) Exactly like that. (laughs) As well as some sailors who went, quote-unquote, completely bananas. Okay. (laughs) Um... There's also a claim that the experiment was altered after that point at the request of the Navy, limiting it to creating a stealth technology that would render USS Elridge invisible to radar. You know, there, there were actually experiments uh, during the Second World War uh, to try to make ships appear invisible. Yeah, I just told you about one. Well, n- no, but like these were real. No, I just told you about a real one, though. <laughs> uh, so they were actually doing things like... Uh, like projecting different like colors on the ship to make it match the sky so yeah that's kind of cool some pretty uh like uh movie magic type stuff yeah so now bear with me through this next sentence okay now we've talked about disney a couple oh, of times God. <laughs> and his and his shadowy government and nazi associates that have attempted to slowly disseminate de-radicalize and eventually normalize alien contact right. and activity into regular society okay i think i think i may have even mentioned them in the last episode did you i don't know the point is the fly obviously it's part of this fucking scheme. How? So obviously. <laughs> it so obviously fits in there. How? Teleportation. Because teleportation is an alien technology. We got it. Um, is Mel Brooks an alien? Maybe. Because, I mean, Possibly. if there was somebody on that movie involved in the movie. <laughs> if, yeah, it's true. It's true. I would not be shocked if Mel Brooks was an alien. Yeah. <laughs> at all. Um, the, the, the fly is, is, is part of this, this scheme. Okay. Wait, wait, wait. Okay, so what did what did the Elridge have to do with aliens? The Elridge is just a great example of teleportation technology, okay. and it's my running theory that um, the, the the Walt Disney um, had made contact with aliens um, during the Second World War, um, and that's what he was trying to disseminate. Um, and the, from the aliens, they, they gathered this uh, teleportation technology. Right. Used it on the El- Eldridge. Wait, 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 wait. Um, I, I, I just, just want to stop you there. So, 
so Walt Disney was supposedly a Nazi, as you say. No, no, I didn't say he was a Nazi. Okay, what'd you say? I said he associated with Nazis. Oh, okay, because I'm just thinking, like, so he gets this alien technology, and then he gives it to the Americans, who then use it against the Nazis? Well, they didn't, they didn't succeed. Okay. <laughs> I, he just had, he was, he was all about getting to the top. He didn't have like allegiance to the Nazis. He just wasn't. It was fine using Nazis to find aliens. Anyway, I'm. This is. This was. None of this was the point. <laughs> okay, what's the point here? <laughs> the point was that the fly is part of their scheme. Okay. To normalize teleportation. It it really makes teleportation not seem very normal though. <laughs> like it makes me pretty horrified to get teleported. It's true. There is a pretty fatal flaw in that theory. <laughs> uh, <laughs> is that it? Like, does the exact does, yeah, does the exact opposite of yeah. I I do have more to the truth. Okay. But obviously, during these segments, uh, I joke around a lot. <laughs> uh, I just hope it's clear that uh, a lot of what I'm saying is satirical. Yeah, I. I just... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm sure this episode is pretty obvious, but, you know, yeah. I just, you know, I don't want the line to be, like, I'm not some sort of conspiracy nut or anything. Yeah, I do, not that I know of, I at do, least. I do enjoy aliens. Yeah. Um, and talking although, about aliens, although I suppose sometimes it might be confusing, because on some of the things we actually have talked about real things. Well, that's exactly my point, is now, <laughs> now the second part of the truth here is... Uh, it's real. Um is real because you know who doesn't fucking joke around is it the u.s air force it's the fucking top guns baby <laughs> actually the top gun is navy isn't it all right now yeah, yeah. Fuck. fucked up there, air buddy. force navy oh yeah. jesus i just really wanted to mention top gun yeah i mean um so tell us about the uh, u.s air force are they hiding a stargate under cheyenne mountain they might be hiding a Stargate under Shine Man, that's totally possible. Um, but we do know everything that they know about teleportation that they're not hiding. Um, because, <laughs> exactly, because, yeah, they looked into teleportation very thoroughly and they released, well, not that thoroughly, but fairly thoroughly. Yeah. And they released uh, an 88 page report in 2004 called. Uh, the teleportation physics study. Mm, um, that sounds interesting. The study, it is actually super interesting, and I suggest anybody who's interested in this sort of thing goes and looks it up because there's, we're barely going to scratch the surface of some of the fascinating things that are in there. Right. Um, the, the study was conducted between 2002 and 2003 um, by a company subcontracted by the Air Force um, that was actually called, this was the real name, warp drive metrics <laughs> what does warp drive metrics do what's their uh i don't really know i didn't look too much into them specifically but we should do that okay later. um this is this is there's also great little detail um that only hockey fans will find amusing um so anybody listening who's disinterested in hockey please ignore the next 30 seconds or so um one of the people who authorized the release of the study and who signed the document is a guy named Phil Kessel. <laughs> <laughs> Phil fucking Kessel. 
His full title is Philip Kessel, Technical Advisor, Space and Missile Propulsion Division. Which is it, great. Yeah, jeez. I mean, I'm just imagining it's the same Phil Kessel. Exactly, because, yeah. well, I mean, back in the you day, know, Phil maybe, Kessel... Maybe Phil Kessel, you know, also, you know... Was part of the Missile Propulsion Division? Was part Damn of the fucking Propulsion right he was. Yeah. Yeah, on the Toronto Maple Leafs, on he the was. Toronto Maple <laughs> He's part of the Missile Propulsion Division, <laughs> shooting pucks in the nets, baby. <laughs> anyway, this document is fascinating, um, but also endlessly dense and confusing. Yeah. Um, I almost kind of wish we had Felix around to maybe try and explain some of it because right. a lot of it is. Does it deal with physics-y. quantum teleportation? Does make an appearance? Yes, I know there, a uh, tiny bit about that. What do you know about quantum teleportation? Uh, basically, that it's um, it's a way of instantaneously transmitting information. In theory, basically, um, there's this idea of a uh, of a of a quantum quantum bit which is like a right. unit of quantum information. And the idea is that you can get two entangled bits of, uh, of information such, basically such that, um, something you do to one quanta quantum. Um, so right. this is like a, this is like a, a particle, right? Yeah. Such yeah, that yeah, something gotcha. you, you do to one particle also affects the other particle. No, no matter how, far apart they are right because they're like they're tethered yeah so i i don't really understand the physics behind it but um yeah uh it, it's uh it's it's being investigated for potential like applications of information transmission yeah basically you'd be able to instantaneously communicate between any two places yeah the, the implications are are unreal yeah um, um it's not entirely clear um, if this is actually doable. Yeah. Uh, like, I don't think the physics are completely understood. It, yeah, it's not clear if, if if doing so would actually violate the laws of physics or not. Right. Yeah. I think there's more inform- There's well, there's definitely more information on it in this document. Um, so again, if you're interested, you should read it. Yeah. The uh, the teleportation physics study. So, but yeah. Anyway, the idea is you couldn't actually trans transport uh matter like a person or a baboon or something using this you would only be able to uh transmit information yeah yeah that's what i gathered yeah which is still pretty cool and the implications are still far reaching yeah um i'm just thinking like i feel like this leads to uh contradictions in physics but I'm sure I'm it not does, a, but this uh, is not a physics podcast. I'm not a podcast. physicist, so I can't really answer them. But I feel like uh, I, I feel like this would lead to violations of causality because of the speed of light and time dilation and all that. I think that's kind of inherent in teleportation, isn't it? Yeah, I guess. I'm not sure. I mean, anyway, it depends on the type. But I mean, hey, that's my exact point, or that's what we're getting to. It depends on the type of teleportation. Yeah. Um. And and in this document. Um, there are five definitions of teleportation which the study explored. Mm-hmm. Um, the first one um, is 
sci-fi teleportation, and they describe it as the disembodied transport of persons or inanimate objects across space by advanced futuristic technological means. So this would be like the transporter um, in Star Trek. Yeah. Okay. Um, they said we will call this SF teleportation, which we, which <laughs> sci-fi. <laughs> yeah, which will not be further considered in this study. Okay. Yeah, I'm glad they uh they made that clear. Number two, psychic teleportation. Oof. The conveyance of persons or inanimate objects by psychic means. Okay. We will call this P teleportation. Okay. Now this one is, this one's a mouthful. This one is engineering the vacuum or space-time metric teleportation. The conveyance of persons or inanimate objects across space by altering the properties of the space-time vacuum or by altering the space-time metric. We will call this VM teleportation. And basically that's like wormholes is what that one's talking about. Right. Yeah, I feel like at a certain point this kind of crosses into like, um, is it teleportation or is it like, you know, some kind of propulsion drive or something like that? Cause I, well, yeah, I, I think... I don't know if you've ever heard of um, the theoretical Alcubierre uh, warp drive, but... No, I haven't. Anyway, it's this basic... Um, it, it, it sounds a lot like what you're describing about, like... I mean, I don't know enough about the physics of this, but basically the Alcubierre warp theory is a way of... Um, if you're allowed to put in like negative ener- like negative uh, energy into Einstein's equation, you can kind of like oh. pull out some weird way of of like being able to like expand the space in front of you and contract so you expand the space behind you and contract the space in front of you such that you can effectively travel at not faster than light because obviously that's the whole point it, 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 right. yeah anyway that is, it, it, that is i i i don't understand the physics behind it but um it's an interesting it's thing a but it sounds a lot like what 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 is being described here yeah but it's another one of those things where it's like you know it, it kind of works on paper but it's not clear if this actually violates the laws of physics yeah, or not they, it sounds compelling and when you write it down it no like like the equations and everything works but like it's like not yeah. clear what that actually maps to like yeah, what does that mean yeah in, what is what is negative world? energy yeah what what is negative energy yeah so yeah that, then you have the final and the fifth and final type of teleportation which is what we were just talking about quantum entanglement yeah oh sorry there's one more there's i sorry there's five there is this is an interesting one it's called exotic teleportation Ooh. and it's the conveyance of persons or inanimate objects by transport through extra space dimensions or parallel universes Ooh. that one's called e-teleportation okay now unfortunately very unfortunately i just don't think we have time to go through all of these okay but suffice to say it's very fascinating document so. and so the the air force is a hundred percent working on teleportation oh, is that what you're yes. saying because this is 2004 yeah oh yeah this is 2004 because well this document this whole do- the whole point of this document is they're they're what they do is they're they're taking these definitions they're assessing them based on um other like all the information available 
about them. Yeah. And then they're coming to a conclusion and then a recommendation for what the Air Force should do regarding them. Right. Uh, I assume that they're they're probably going to focus on some, like, somewhat less out-there-sounding, you know form of this so do we know which kind of uh which kind of the teleportation that seth brundle's machine used uh sci-fi teleportation right the kind that wasn't discussed yeah exactly okay the so, kind that is kind of vague right i actually glanced at this this paper i think before you uh uh before we talked about it and um i believe they actually mention this movie in the paper correct they do <laughs> they do indeed it comes up yeah where is it yeah here's the quote um from the from the paper did, did phil castle write this quote it might have been phil this, castle, this might be yeah. phil castle? <laughs> yeah. allegedly phil castle wrote this yeah teleportation has appeared in such sci-fi literature classics as alges budry's rogue moon um, gold medal books, 1960. A. E. Van Vaught's World of Null, of Null A. Sorry. George Lanklin's The Fly. Um, the Playboy magazine short led to a cottage industry of popular films decrying the horrors of scientific technology that exceeded mankind's wisdom. The Fly, 1958. Return of the Fly, 1959. Curse of the Fly, 1965. The Fly, a 1986 remake. There it is. And The Fly 2, 1989. <laughs> so, yeah. So it does all tie... The Air Force watched this movie. Yeah, it all does tie back in. Yeah. But for the sake of time right now, I really want to just look at some excerpts from the chapter on psychic teleportation. <laughs> oh, God. Because it sounds badass. <laughs> are they actually looking into this? Yeah, look, it sounds badass as fuck. It sounds awesome. Look, so the, the Air Force is actually seriously discussing yes. psychic teleportation yes, and we'll get in into 2004. It. We're going to get it right, into it right now. And, and honestly, okay. it was a toss-up for me to, to like focus on psychic teleportation or the parallel universe one. Um, well, you picked the one that sounds the most like fucking out there fucking awesome i picked the one that sounds the most fucking awesome psychic teleportation is badass okay okay cause so here's here's the first quote for from the explanation uh for psychic teleportation scientifically controlled pk experiments at the princeton university engineering anomalies research laboratory were conducted by robert yan uh dean emeritus of the school of engineering who reported that repeatedly consistent results in mentally affecting material substances has been demonstrated in the lab. In the 1980s, Jan attended... Wait, wait, wait. Did he cite any paper or anything? Or yeah, Jan just... and Du, 1987, is the citing. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. So there's okay. a paper. Um, in the 19... 19- look that up? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm going to look up so many of these later. <laughs> In the 1980s, Jan attended a meeting on the PK topic at the Naval Research Laboratory and warned that foreign adversaries could exploit micro or macro PK to induce U.S. military fighter pilots to lose control of their aircraft and crash. This is sounding a lot more like another Cronenberg movie. (laughs) Which one? Scanners. 
It's true, it is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, continue. So you can see why the Air Force was concerned, you know? Aircraft crashing. <laughs> yeah, naturally. Um, here's another <laughs> excerpt. This one is even more compelling. In September 1981, an extraordinary paper was published in the PRC in the journal Ziran Zazi. This paper was entitled some experiments on the transfer of objects performed by unusual abilities of the human body. You with me? Yeah, I'm with you. The, For now. The paper reported that gifted children were able to cause the apparent teleportation of small objects, radio microtransmitters, photosensitive paper, mechanical watches, Horse flies, other insects, etc. Flies. Flies. They're transporting flies. They're transporting flies. <laughs> All right, continue. From one location to another, that was meters away, without them ever okay. touching the objects beforehand. The experiments were operated under exceptionally well-controlled conditions. The researchers involved included not only observers from various PRC colleges, um, and medical research institutes, but also um, representatives from the PRC National Defense Science Commission. Additional research carried out by the Aerospace Medicine Engineering Institute in Beijing was reported in the July 1990 issue of the Chinese Journal of Somatic Science. In several articles, there are experiments involving the videotaping and high-speed photography of the transfer of tests of test specimens, nuts, bundles of matches, pills, nails, thread, photosensitive paper, chemically treated paper, etc., through the walls of sealed paper envelopes, double-layered paper bags, sealed glass bottles, and tubes with sealed caps and sealed plastic film canisters without the walls of any of these containers being breached. Right. All of the Chinese experiments reported using gifted children and young adults who possessed well-known extraordinary PK ability to cause the teleportation of the various test specimens. In all the experimental cases that were reported, the test specimens that were teleported were completely unaltered or unchanged from their initial state. I think they're talking about the fly there. <laughs> Even the insects were unaffected by being teleported. The experiments were well controlled, scientifically recorded, and the experimental results were always re repeatable. Right. Um, where are these videotapes? Um, I mean, so I think the, the biggest issue with all of this is that it all comes down to the word of the PRC. Yeah, um, some, like, shady, like, research organization inside the PRC is, like, probably not a great source. <laughs> Yeah, and it's also a bit disturbing like, that they're talking the, about, like, yeah. working with children. Yeah. It's pretty disturbing. Yeah. 
How much did the fucking Air Force pay Phil Kessel to come up with this report? Uh, well, I don't know if they're getting their money's worth. Well, actually, it's funny you should mention that because at the end of each chapter, as I mentioned, like the authors state the recommendations that the Air Force yeah. do, like based on their findings. And this is this is like just an excerpt from that section on the on the PK teleportation. Yeah. The performances and characteristics of P-teleportation need to be delineated in order to develop a refined hypothesis. Um, Such a program should be designed so that an operational model for P-teleportation can be developed and implemented as a prototype. An experimental program similar in fashion to the remote viewing program should be funded at $900,000 to $1 million <laughs> per year in parallel <laughs> with a theoretical program funded at $500,000 per year for an initial five-year duration. The role of quantum physics theory and related quantum phenomena, i.e. entanglement and teleportation in P-teleportation and psychotronics should be explored in this program. <laughs> An ex- I don't know, this just sounds wacky. It's so wacky. Like, I can't believe, like, I don't know, like, for all I know, the Air Force did just fucking drop $1.5 million on, like, psychic teleportation <laughs> research. Studies. Yeah. Like, I'm sure they did. Oh, this geez. was the recommendation. This is the like, yeah. The uh, warp drive metrics recommended metrics, yeah. to the U.S. Air Force that they spend like two upwards of three million dollars. Yeah. Anyway, that's 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 the truth. Um, yeah, really, the conspiracy is. Why is the Air Force wasting all this fucking money? <laughs> He's, did you say wasting? I'm sorry, but yeah. this, is the, this is the frontier of science. <laughs> On psychic teleportation. Psychic teleportation, yeah, exactly. <laughs> all right. Okay, so we're, we're nearing the end here. Um, just before we get into our final thoughts, we could, we could just very briefly go over the sequels not like in any detail just okay yeah the, the you know that they happen the sequel i thought there was only one well yes they only made one sequel oh, okay and then of course you know that there was the opera yes that we talked about last episode um but there was like a bunch of like there was supposed to be a remake of the remake in the early 2000s and there were rumors of right. that, but it fell apart. Um, but I assume Cronenberg wasn't involved. No, not at all. Because he doesn't do rem. Right. He doesn't. I mean, he does. He sorry. He doesn't do sequels. Well, yeah, exactly. Um, he he does remakes because obviously this one was one. Yeah, um, but then like in the late like two thousands, um, rumors started to swirl. Um, yeah. And this is what he said. Um, about that uh this is a quote well i did talk to fox because my agent found out that they were approaching people to do a remake of my film he sort of said right he, he sort of said well you know what about david and they right and they said well we never thought of that <laughs> i i guess fair enough i guess they kind of just assumed he wasn't interested yeah, exactly I, I would assume that 
Um, yeah. I, um, I think they'd been to. Oh, I always, I'm so bad at pronouncing his name. Guillermo del Toro. Okay. And, that might be interesting. And Michael Bay. Um, oh, jeez. I said, long ago I proposed a sequel to Mel Brooks. This is super interesting. Um, long ago I. Wait, so this is what Cronenberg uh, said? Yeah, this is Cronenberg talking. Um, long ago I proposed a sequel to Mel Brooks. Um, when he said that he wanted to make a sequel. Um, he didn't like what I proposed because he said it wasn't the same as the original movie. A sequel, he said, should be more of the same. And I said, Okay. Well, Mel, then I'm not interested. Okay. And then he goes on to say, and he went off and did his sequels, and they had nothing to do with me, and they weren't very successful. Right. <laughs> Which is true. But yeah, he said, then he, he further goes on to say, um, but I still had this idea in my mind, which no, I won't tell you. And I said to tell Fox, us. I know, right? Come on, David, tell I us. Know, tell us. And he said to Fox, um, or I said to Fox, it says Cronenberg, um, I'll write that idea up because as I think of it, it could be interesting. And they were excited about it enough to pay me to write a script. And then for various huh. reasons, it kind of got bogged down. I don't know exactly why. It seems now that it's not going to happen. Blah, 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 blah. It's not exactly a sequel, and it's not exactly a remake. More a meditation. It involves teleportation. <laughs> okay, that's an interesting way of putting it. Yeah. Um, huh. But yeah, I thought that was interesting, that there was almost a remake of the remake, but it kind of fell apart. Right. I'd be very curious to see a David Cronenberg remake of a David Cronenberg remake. Well, it wouldn't be a remake. It would be more of a meditation. Right, exactly. <laughs> so I guess uh, we should uh, get into the final thoughts. Yeah, yeah. I think I think we've droned on long enough about non-fly-related yeah. things. Yeah, and psychic teleportation and warp drive and Phil Kessel. <laughs> that was, yeah, you. that was the greatest hits of that last 30 yeah. minutes. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so uh, you want to go first? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, I think, I think basically everything I feel about this movie I already said. Um, but just to summarize, um, it's I really enjoyed it. I liked watching it. Obviously, I'm like squirming in my seat at some moments because it's hard to watch. Um, but mm. I think that's kind of the point. Um, yeah, because of like what it's trying to to make you reckon with or whatever. Um, mm. But I obviously had some major issues, like such as, you know, I didn't like uh, the initial romance. Just I just found it to be uh, hollow. And I, found, I mean, it did happen pretty quickly. Yeah. And I mean, like, yeah. you know, part of the point of of like they made a big deal about how David Cronenberg changed it so that they weren't already married. Right. Um, but I feel like it would have been just as effective as a, a movie honestly if they were already married and then there's this like third guy who like appears and it's still kind of a love triangle or whatever right i don't know okay uh, but, I, I yeah i find it funny you say that because there's literally a line in uh in the movie where he's like is, the, is this a romance we're having here yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> i think david cronenberg called it a romantic comedy at one point <laughs> really? when describing it that was you. a joke right probably but but yeah. also a little bit a little bit of i mean there are parts that are funny yeah 
It's it's a romantic body horror drama. <laughs> exactly. But yeah, so ultimately, I mean, when it comes to like the effects, um masterful when it comes to yeah. when it comes to um Jeff Goldblum's performance, masterful when it comes to the uh, uh um the score, it's masterful. So, mm. I mean, the direction is like I'm not great at spotting masterful direction or cinematography is not my strong suit at spotting, but it, it from what I can tell, it's pretty good. Um, yeah. So you know, overall, I like it, but I have some major problems. I think those are my final thoughts. Right. Yeah. What about you? I don't know. Um, like I, I really enjoyed it. I I uh, I don't think the uh, the issues like stood out as much to me as uh they did to you although i do i was a little annoyed how uh how stathis boren's uh sort of um got to be the hero yeah that that bothered me as well (laughs) yeah um but uh yeah no like i think uh you know fantastic effects fantastic acting yep all around all around um yeah fantastic casting (laughs) yeah yeah some great direction i mean you know the burger he uh he knows how to make them so so you're on the side of the film you you're a good you're a big fan yeah i'm a big fan of this movie yeah i mean i think your attitude towards the plasma pool monologue over this last week uh, yeah, your obsession dude, with the plasma monologue has proven your, so your loyalty to this film. I mean, it is such a good fucking monologue. I like, I'm, yeah, it's uh, just almost, he's so unhinged. We should end the episode with it, actually, so we you can, want, hear, yeah, you want, so yeah, we can okay. hear it one more time. You want to do that now? Should we just yeah, end it let's here? Let's just end it right now. And All right. To it. So we will we will leave you with, with with Jeff Goldblum very quickly losing his mind. <laughs> Yes. This is a sick man. Could a sick man do this? <laughs> Sorry, I should say that as well. That was a great line. That was a great line. <laughs> so yeah, um, thanks everybody for listening. Um, Thank you for listening. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Something went wrong, Seth. When you went through, something went wrong. No, not you. You're too chicken shit to be a member of the Dynamic Duo Club? Okay, then great. I'll find somebody else. Somebody who can keep up with me. Seth, you have to listen to me. You're afraid to dive into the plasma pool, aren't you? You're afraid to be destroyed, recreated, aren't you? I bet you think that you woke me up about the flesh, don't you? But you only know society's straight line about the flesh. You can't penetrate beyond society's sick, gray fear of the flesh. Drink deep or taste not the plasma spring. See what I'm saying? I'm not just talking about sex and penetration. I'm talking about penetration beyond the veil of the flesh. A deep, penetrating dive into the plasma pool. <laughs> this this document is fascinating. Ooh, that was a, a big lot one. of thunder. Yeah. I'll start that sentence again. Oh. Well, it hit you there. Yeah. That's hilarious. We got we got the real time delay there. Wait, was that a sonic was that a sonic boom, you think? Like sorry, not know. sonic boom, but like uh 
Did we just get the, like, we, did we just demonstrate delay? the speed of sound there? We just did, yeah. Like, because I'm wondering if that was the same thing. It was. No, it sounded exactly the same. Yeah. That's really that's cool. So fucking cool. We could, that's... we could measure how far we are away from each other <laughs> that's by checking so how long it took cool. this to... Uh... Science. <laughs>